I'm going to continue today, and this will be the last part of this little series we've been doing about uh, coming to communion in remembrance of Christ. Uh, there's so much more that could be said in this, but I just kind of feel like that we need to kind of wrap it up a little bit. And uh, <clears throat> what we've been using as kind of our starting point each week is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 to 26. The Apostle Paul said, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. And as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A few weeks ago, we <laughs> looked at this specific point, and that is that the scripture encourages us to look specifically at the person of Christ Jesus. Do it in remembrance of me, he said. He didn't say just do it in remembrance of the things I've done. I want you to do it in remembrance of who I am. Now, that would include all that he said and all that he's done. But sometimes we can just get fixated on the words of another person and miss the heart of the person. And he really wants us to catch his heart and his spirit and to catch the revelation of who he is. A few weeks back, that took us to this first point. At the Lord's table, we come recalling Christ as the eternal word who always was, who is, and is to come. And he also referred to himself as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Keep in mind, the universe came into existence by Father God through Christ in the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind that Christ is in all things, as the Apostle Paul reveals to us. And all things exist in Christ and because of Christ. He holds all together. Only human beings, of course, in all of creation are created in the image and likeness of God. And that, that, that sets mankind uniquely apart from all of the rest of creation. That's a very, very important point for us to understand and one of the foundational points in the Christian faith. And so the second thought that we shared a few weeks ago, and that was when we come to the Lord's table, we're recalling Christ as God who became fully human to reveal the Father and to show us how to become truly human. In other words, Jesus came and he took on the limitations and the likeness of human beings. Okay? That's very, very important. Because in the incarnation, Christ mysteriously and completely assumes or assimilates all of mankind and the fullness of human nature. He did that so that ultimately he could heal our humanity in himself through his death and resurrection. And so Christ cleansed us. He didn't come to cleanse us of our humanity. He came to cleanse us of the things that dehumanize us. 
the lies that we believe sometimes, the lies that we assume, and sometimes we don't even recognize the distorted thoughts and thinking that lead to distorted feelings and responses, etc. It is those things, though, that dehumanize us. And so Jesus came so that our hearts could be cleansed and healed so that we become more fully human. And that's a process. He didn't come just to help us clean up our behavior so we could now have the checklist, the do-good list, and the list that says of the do-nots so we don't have any check marks on those. Or we could say, yeah, I did not those things, okay? It was so much more than that. He came that we might be more fully human. St. Athanasius said, God became man so that man might become God. Of course, not deity, but God-like. That's why Jesus came. This is sometimes called or known as theosis. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. That's a Greek word that can be translated as deification or divinization. The early church fathers actually looked at the Christian walk along this line. The Christian walk isn't about just getting saved so I can go to heaven someday. It's really all about embracing Christ and allowing his life and participating and partaking of salvation that we might become godlike. And the gospel should not be presented in any other way than that. That is what the gospel is about, of becoming godlike. And of course, we get to spend eternity with him. That's just kind of the bonus, but really it's about becoming more fully human and moving in that flow here in this life and actually throughout eternity. The third thought that we shared last week was at the Lord's table, we come recalling Christ as the lover and the savior of all sinners. Um, <clears throat> the first thing that Jesus did, if we look at his earthly ministry, was surround himself with 12 ragtag sinners. You would think that Jesus would come and he would say, hey, I want to find those folks that have the, the, the good thing happening. They're good people. Uh, their morals are, are, of the, are of the highest standard. That's not who he came looking for. He came to ordinary people. As a matter of fact, those who claim to live to the highest moral standards are the ones that caused him the most problem. And they're ultimately the ones that sent him to the cross. But he invested his time into ordinary people. He never did tell them, you're a bunch of sinners, you need to repent so you can go to heaven. His whole goal was for them to catch his heart that the kingdom values, the values of heaven, the kingdom values would be integrated into their lives so they would begin to act like him, talk like him, and live out the principles that he was modeling for them. You remember in Mark chapter uh, 6, 34, Jesus landed, it was, uh, he was out on the Sea of Galilee, and he goes to the North Shore, and he, he, he they land the boat, and they saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And it's interesting to me how that Jesus, when he looks at in this case, he looked at that multitude of people, and being the great shepherd, he saw them as sheep. He didn't see them as goats. He saw them as sheep. 
God looks upon every human, I absolutely believe this, 100%. He looks on every human on the globe, nearly 8 billion, and he says, those are all my sheep. But he clearly realizes that many are lost. They don't even know they're sheep. They don't know that they're made in the image and likeness of God. They don't know their shepherd. They don't know the possibilities that could be in their life in becoming fully human or at least in that process. So Jesus looks upon everyone. Can you imagine how our world would be different if those of us who identify with Christ would just look at everybody else and see them as sheep? It would make a huge difference. People can sense that. When we look at somebody else and say, oh, man, that person, man, that's a real low life right there. What does that do? That plays into the hands of the evil one. That's what the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the sheep, that's how he sees people. And he's always injecting shame into the heart of people. We all know what that's like because it's how the enemy works. Because none of us have always have lived a perfect life in heart, in attitude, etc., see? Or maybe aspects of behavior. And so when we see people with sheep, but you see, compassion does that. But I also want to flip it the other way. When you have the perspective that actually all are made in the image and likeness of God and are sheep, it releases a compassion. Compassion isn't something you have to muster up. Compassion is a sign of the connectedness that we have with our Lord. And when we view life and we view other people as he views them, that compassion just naturally flows out. And the thoughts that we may have had about other people before based on their behavior or their attitude or whatever, it it shifts. What we see is, is, what we see is, them as sheep, and we see the beauty of who they were created to be. You guys remember last week we talked about Luke 15, 3 to 4. Jesus told them this parable, suppose one of you have a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave ninety and nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until, until, until what? Jesus is probably talking about himself there, right? In John, several times he refers to himself as the good shepherd and of humanity as sheep. And he gives this parable. Now, as I've said before, you want to be careful with parables. You don't just take parable now and automatically turn it into a specific point of doctrine in Scripture. So we want to be careful with that. But I think given the fact that Jesus is always referring to himself as shepherd and the great shepherd and people's being sheep... I, I, I have a, a, a lot of confidence in this thought that Jesus is basically wanting to communicate, I will find my sheep. I'm going to find my sheep. And I think that that's where God wants to encourage our hearts. If you're feeling maybe lost or you know of somebody else that feels like they're wandering around, bumping around through life, know this, Jesus says, as he told the disciples, I'm going to find my sheep. How many of you know he does not give up? We sang last week the song, 
of, of, of the love of God, reckless love of God, but he's always coming after us. It's the nature, it's the heart of God. And so I would that we would be able to have that perspective. Picture this. Christ does not have a stopwatch. And he says, okay, I think I'm going to put a limit on the time here. I've been searching for this sheep for about two years now. And the time's just about up. If they don't repent, sorry. That is not the heart of God. We can even go back to Old Testament, to Exodus, and see that he's long-suffering. God is long-suffering, compassionate, tender. That's the heart of a father. I've never known of a parent in the natural that when a child is lost, that parent is not going to give up until they find their child. Why does a parent do that? They have this something in them that we all parents do. Even in a grocery store, all of a sudden you look around, my kid, oh dear God, what happened to my child? And you have these thoughts run through your mind. Did somebody grab them and run out the door and you run around, look around the other corner of the aisles like, oh, thank God, there they are. Right? Why do we respond in that fashion? Because it's natural because we're made in the image and likeness of God. We're going to search until we find our girl, our boy, our child. That's the heart of our father revealed through Christ Jesus, and Christ is revealing this to the disciples. I think that's just a beautiful gospel, don't you? We need to quit this stopwatch thing. Up, oh, time's up now, sorry. On our timeline, we put people on timelines, and if they don't appear to be found by a certain time, then we go, well, that was just too bad. I'm afraid that they're done. They're toast. Where do we get this stuff? Jesus said, I'm going to find him. He's a good shepherd. I don't think we need to be stressed even about people coming to Christ. We don't need to be stressed. I think we can be hopeful, full of confidence and faith that God is at work. And sometimes our hearts break because we pray and we give our hearts and we share good news and there doesn't seem to be a response. But remember this, Jesus said, the shepherd's going to find his sheep. Here's some promises in scripture. Let me just share a couple of these. Is that, um, let's look here. Oh, the first one is John 1, 7. This man came for a witness to bear witnesses of the light that through him all would believe. Who? How many? All would believe. You understand that father sent his son. He didn't send him on a mission that would be incomplete. Jesus said, my mission is to seek and save the lost. Now, that Bob messes my head a little bit because we, I look at life and I look at people with humanity with hopeful anticipation, and then I have these certain thoughts and mindsets and, 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 and perspectives that then cause me grave concern or stress, and yet I have to come back to the promises of Scripture. John 12, 32, if I am lifted from uh, up from the earth, 
uh, will draw or drag all men to myself. Drag it was like a dragnet. That's actually the term that's used in draw. 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, we all understand the Adam, the first Adam because of his fall. But Jesus is spoken of as the second Adam. Okay? Who's more powerful, the first Adam or the second Adam? If the consequences of Adam in the garden affect all people, surely the Savior of the world, Christ, the Creator, would have an effect on all people. Not sure all how that works. I don't. Not sure all about the timelines, but that's our problem. We we get locked into timeline because we're finite. Understand. Jesus Christ always was, is, and will be. He is not bound to a timeline. He created time, and he works within time, but he's not bound to time as we understand it. And that's where we trip up, I think, in a lot of areas of our understanding of God. Because we're finite, and we just see this linear timeline. Meanwhile, that's not how God, or God's not limited to that. He actually created that, uh, but he's not limited. Oh, here's uh, uh, another verse uh, in Philippians 2.10. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That is, those that said the prayer on the timeline within a certain allotted time. What? Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and where? Under the earth. Not sure all what that means. But that's pretty all-inclusive. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Well, we're not going to try to figure all of that out today. I don't have it all figured out. But what I'm wanting to do is to shed some of the conclusive thinking and arguments that I've had and I just want to come back to the simplicity of the scriptures and say I can't ignore I don't know how all God works but I have to allow my heart to be encouraged and as I read these scriptures but here's something that I think is a reality Tell, give me, give me, give me a, a minute on this does a person cease to exist after, as a living being after they leave their body in physical death? No. We, we all know that. That's common understanding amongst Christians. We don't cease to exist. We simply leave the body. But our spirit lives on. We're eternal beings, right? So spiritual transformation, where does it say in Scripture... That spiritual transformation and process ends the moment you leave your physical body. Never heard it said. I can't find it in scripture. Now I'm going to show you some stuff here that I think we should just take a look at. 
I don't think that spiritual transformation ends. And that takes us to our next point. And I want to spend the remainder of our time on this. When we come to the communion table, we want to celebrate the fact and recall Christ Jesus as judge of the living and the dead. Second Timothy 4, 1. In the presence of God and of Christ, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. Acts 10, 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. The Apostle Paul. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Romans 14, 9 through 12. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and living. Verse 10 you, then why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? For we will. Everyone said all. We will all stand before God's judgment seat. Because it's written, as surely as I live, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And by the way, guys, scholars who are trained in classical Greek tell us very explicitly that they will gladly bow. That the love of God will be so compelling they will gladly bow. It's not by force. Now, that's scholars of classical Greek. They go way back and they understand culturally and such. If, they, if you just know modern Greek, you may not get that. But the guys who study, gals who study classical Greek. Interesting. All people who have ever lived on the earth who are alive at his coming will experience eternal judgment. And i got to throw this in now. Slash God's justice. Judgment from a biblical perspective, is God's justice. Uh, what's the purpose of judgment? Isn't judgment about determining the kind of punishment and to the extent of punishment that somebody will have for failing to obey God and live right? Isn't God's judgment and punishment for all immoral people that didn't keep the list of moral behavior? as well as those who hurt and demean and kill other people. And isn't judgment a punishment for those who never said the prayer before they took their last breath, at least not known to anyone else? Isn't judgment for them? Whether they're 10 years old, 12 years old, or 85 years old, they didn't say the prayer. Now, it's punishment time. Isn't judgment 
a punishment for hypocrites and those who did not live up to the spiritual standards set by God? As I read the scriptures, judgment is for all people. Now, don't be afraid, because there's actually beauty in judgment. Judgment is for all people, even church-going Christians. Every person sitting in a pew in this city and all over America or the world, whatever they're doing is for all people. Everyone will stand before Christ Jesus. Yes, even people who lived up to the moral standards of society and what we would say, those moral standards of Scripture. They too will stand before Christ. So what happens in judgment then? All are, are people who are judged by God just punished with eternal conscious torment? What happened at the cross? Didn't Christ take upon himself the sin of humanity? And does not the scriptures tell us plainly in 2 Corinthians that he no longer holds trespasses against humankind? Or did Jesus only die for those people that he foreknew who would live appropriately? And so they're in the clear, but it's all those other folks. That's not what the scriptures tell us. He died for all. Salvation has already been granted to all. Uh, all have been already forgiven. Think about it. Jesus has already objectively borne God's judgment for sin through his death on the cross. We have multiple, multiple passages that tell us of this glory. I think sometimes we trip up because we have this notion, some of us anyhow, have had this notion that judgment is about punishment. And as I understand God and as I understand the scriptures, that is a very limiting and very narrow perspective, and I think a distorted perspective. I believe that the scriptures give us some great indication that judgment is about purification and being conformed to his likeness and transformation. Regardless of how perfect you may think your life is on this, uh, in, in this life before you die, you have not yet been fully perfected. There's transformation yet to be experienced. And that's the primary purpose of judgment. Us going and standing for Christ at judgment is not for the purpose of being demeaned and ridiculed and put down and condemned because of the areas that we didn't measure up in in our lives, attitude, etc., etc., etc. It's about having those things exposed that maybe we thought were no big deal, but we knew. Or how about the things that of our heart that we didn't even realize that did not honor God? That's what judgment is about, purification. 
Judgment is about purification from anything that is not the essence of God's pure love. Only the pureness and fullness of love will remain for eternity. Everything else will be purified and burned away from our lives and all of humanity. God's judgment is about justice, it's about restoration. It, it's actually about becoming more fully human. Because we will be given another body. Just as Jesus had. Jesus came, had an earthly mortal body. He dies, he's resurrected, has a glorified body. And the scripture promises us that we too will have a glorified body. Okay? And that is a part of becoming fully human. But also, we can't become fully human just getting the glorified body. That's why we need to stand before the judgment of the Lord. To allow him to purify our hearts and our thinking. It's interesting that in Romans 14, for this reason Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of the dead and the living. And then Paul, he gets really, he starts messing around with this. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? Who's your brother? Anyone in your family? All of our neighbors? Everyone in the city? People of other ethnic groups? People groups in the world? People of other nations? Every person. If you just look at the language that is used in Scripture and the appropriate context is that's the brother includes all. Why do you look down? You see, your brother can be the person whose sexual orientation and identity is different than yours. And one that you don't understand and maybe makes you upset. That's your brother. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm using some just to really illustrate the point because it includes all, right? But your brother is a person whose spiritual journey looks different than yours. A journey that you don't understand. And they call themselves a Christian but they don't measure up to certain biblical doctrines that you think is important, that I think are important to me. Therefore, still my brother from Christ, they're still a sheep from Christ's perspective. Does that make them like, well, they were just like perfectly aligned? Maybe not. Probably not. They have some pretty big flaws. Could even be big flaws in doctrine. Your brother is the person who has a different political perspective and identifies with the radical right or the radical left, but definitely opposite of you. But they worship on Sunday? Maybe across the aisle from you? <laughs> Another place down the street? Or maybe they don't, maybe they don't attend church. You see, your brother is the person who mistreats other people and causes harm to them and just has so many outward signs of just evil at work. Still created the image and likeness of God. Have distorted thinking and it's consumed their hearts and they have obsessions. They have this and they have that and now they're destructive. Still a created human being and 
It's a brother in the sense that Christ sees them as a sheep. Think about this, guys. Anything that is not the pure love of God will be revealed in judgment and burned. That ought to make us happy. You know why? That's what makes heaven so beautiful. Yeah. See, sometimes we just way too glib with this saying heaven. Well, I just pray that prayer and you just go to heaven. Yay! No, 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 no. There's so much more to the gospel. The gospel is about embracing the person of Jesus Christ. It's about this process of life, of becoming human, being conformed to his image and likeness. And we stumble along the way, and we trip up sometimes, and other people can see it sometimes innocent. We just think, I'm totally innocent before God. But, and we are, so far as we know, our conscience can be clear. Just because our conscience is clear doesn't mean that we're without fault in need of purification and judgment. I got to read you this scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 to 5. Now, this is the great apostle Paul. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Now, get this. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. How many of you have ever been cruising through life and all of a sudden you have this awakening moment and the Holy Spirit who is at work in us so faithfully and all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, this is a sinful attitude I have. How many of you ever had that moment? May I see that hand? (laughs) Right. Moments before, maybe weeks before, your conscience was clear. You didn't see it. But at certain points in times, the Holy Spirit reveals it. It's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Judgment in my heart towards another person. Attitude that is just so dishonoring to my Lord as it please him. And it's destructive to my own life and to other people. So we can have a clear conscience today, but not be innocent. You know why? Because we only know in part. All we're responsible for is what the Holy Spirit reveals to us, and that is along the way he he searches our hearts. And if we say, I think like David, search my heart, oh God. I think it's a great prayer. And I think it's a great prayer that we do before we come to the communion table. It's a prayer of confession. Somebody said, well, I'm not going to pray that prayer because I don't have any sin in my life. Yikes. That's scary to me. Maybe your conscience is clear, but maybe there's something that dishonors the Lord. I just want to always come before the Lord and say, God, thank you for your love and forgiveness. Forgive me, cleanse me. Because there may be things lurking in the shadows of my heart that I'm not consciously aware of. So my conscience is clear in that I'm not willfully going against God, but I may not, I don't see everything because I only know in part. I am not yet fully human, fully perfected, and fully conformed to the likeness of Christ. Does this make sense, I hope? All right, here's a couple more thoughts.
if the essence of God's nature is relationship, sin needs to be defined as, as missing a relational reality, a distortion of God's image in us, and a distortion of our responsiveness to him. The problem is sometimes we use sin. We, we, there's a word, hamartia, that means to miss the mark. And we sometimes picture it like a target with a bullseye. And to be right on is to live up to all the moral standards of God. And that means me hitting the bullseye. And to miss the mark means I fall short of different kinds of standards that we perceive anyhow. Uh, and that we believe the scripture speaks of. And we say that's missing the mark. Guess what? That's a symptom. The missing the mark has to do with the relational reality that is not, hasn't been um, understood or grasped or uh, um, lived within in the depths of our soul. And so the outward behavior is just the symptom. The missing the mark has to do with the relational reality of a connection. I'm not as fully connected with my Lord as I maybe thought I was. Because outwardly, I missed the mark on this point and that point. So the cure is not, okay, i got to try harder now so I don't miss those marks of morality. No, the cure is come back and say, oh God, like David, just search my heart. Because it has to do with the relational reality. The truth of our being in Christ is that we're safe and secure within him. But we have this part of us yet that is in processes of being conformed. There are certain aspects of our life being conformed to the likeness of Christ. So judgment is more than just about punishing bad behavior. And uh, all the motives of our heart will be exposed in judgment. And sometimes we do good things with tainted motives. You can get the praise of all kinds of people for all the noble deeds you've done in the name of Christ with Bible verses attached and stand at the judgment seat. And God says, the motives weren't pure. It was about you promoting your ministry or about looking good or whatever, see? And you know what? Heaven's going to be more beautiful when we get purified of that. We'll more fully enjoy eternity getting purified. Paul says, uh, well, the writer of Hebrews says God is a consuming fire. Okay? He's a consuming fire. And sometimes you think consuming fire, ah, oh, it's about punishment. That's right. Those people should be punished. Guess what? The consuming fire is about purification, and it can feel painful. How many of you ever had God work in your heart in a way right now in this life that where it can actually feel painful? When you bring some of the disciplines and corrections to our heart, right? If you haven't experienced that, maybe you're due. <laughs> maybe this is your day. But that can be painful to all of a sudden realize something of, of our hearts that isn't right. Man, I've had it happen. 
a lot of times. So much, I on my on the floor, bawling like a baby, cried out to God, forgive me. I, I didn't see it. I was so blind. Blinded. Darkness crept in, and I was blinded to that. See? Well, when we stand before the Lord in his love and glory, things are exposed. But here's what we know. It's always safe to stand in the presence of pure love. It's safe, and it's always good, and it's always going to be beautiful. I got to read one more scripture. Man, we got to wrap this up here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 to 15. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and another man is building on it. Let each man take care of how he builds. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will be manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with... Revealed with what? Fire. And the fire will test the sort of work each has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, God, I spent my whole life just trying to serve you. Look at all what I've done for my family. Look at all I've done in helping and serving other people. Now Paul's suggesting, like, if it survives... Don't get depressed. It's all going to work out great. You will experience ultimate glory, okay? If the work which any man on the foundation, oh, hang on, I got myself off track. That shook me up a little bit, the surviving one right here. In the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Isn't that beautiful? See, there's kind of a twofold thing going on at judgment. There's a purification process, but there are also rewards. If any man's work, any man, any person on the globe, if their work is burned up, he will suffer loss. It will feel. It could be painful. I spent my whole life doing it because I thought this is what you wanted me to do. I mean, look at all the good I did. And look at all the people that praised me. And look at all the lives. And all the people that said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And only to find out. That there was an impure motive behind it all. I wanted to look good. I wanted to be the great woman of God. I wanted to have a significant ministry. Or I wanted this, or I wanted that, or the other. That can be a bit painful to come to that revelation. That's a part of transformation that doesn't end when they take the last breath. We cannot be fully conformed to the likeness and glory of God until we face judgment. And even then, into eternity, is this continual conforming. Now, all the issues of while on earth and attitudes and everything will be dealt with at the judgment seat. But then read, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he he himself will be saved. But only as through the fire. Everybody's got to go through the fire. And some of you are looking pretty sad right now. I don't know how to make this happier. 
Remember this, the fire is a fire of purification. It frees us. Because it's all the love and the grace and beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. It sets us free. On your best day in this world, your best day in this world isn't nearly as good as it's going to be standing there liberated, having experienced the purification of the Lord. You know those purification moments in our life here on earth, right? And you go, wow, I feel so free. God just delivered. God just set me free of this. And those are so beautiful. Now just amp it up a little bit because we're all going to experience that at the judgment seat. Unless you're one of the 8 billion, well, all the other billion, the two, so like, like what, 20 billion or whatever. Unless you're one of the 20 billion who've ever lived that live perfectly and there's nothing to burn away. God bless you. But all of the rest of us are going to experience some purification and it's going to be liberating. Beautiful. The flames are the consuming and purifying fire. Can someone stand before the judgment of God unrepentant and defy God for eternity? I don't know. You got to be pretty powerful. You see, we can be unrepentant and defy God here in this life because none of us have experienced or faced the fullness of glory to the extent that we will at the judgment seat. Because we have blindness and there's darkness. But at the judgment seat of Christ, everything is exposed. There is no darkness there. So can people resist God and remain unrepentant? Maybe. I don't know. And the other question is, how long? For eternity? Maybe. But I know God's long-suffering. And Revelation says the gates of the city will never be shut. I don't know. I just don't want to be one of those that try it. I don't want to be an unrepentant one. I want to come up and stand before the Lord. Lord, here I am. Ouch. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I felt good, though. Felt so good. Do it again, Lord. Where's another area of my life? <laughs> you know, and so as ones whose hearts are towards the Lord, there's nothing to fear in judgment. True fear of the Lord always draws your heart towards him. If you have experienced a fear that drives you away, it's not truly the fear of the Lord. There's other related factors that we'll, we can talk about on a rainy day. I would love to invite you all to the communion table today. <laughs> As we remember Christ, he's the eternal one beginning and the end, creator, lover of all of humanity. We remember him because he's the one that became human, took on human limitations so that we could become fully human. He just dealt with the sin problem for everybody. Not everybody has caught that yet. There's so many people in our world that need to hear the good news and that's why we pray that the eyes will be open so they can experience the salvation of the Lord.
But we come to the communion table today knowing that he's a savior of all people. And he's a loving shepherd and he's always going after his people. And he won't relent. He, he will always go after his people. We come to the table of the Lord today knowing that he is, Christ Jesus is the judge of both the living and the dead. But it's glorious. It's glorious. So if there's any fear in our hearts, let fear dissipate in Jesus' name. There is a healthy kind of holy fear of the Lord. Okay, so that's not a bad thing. But if it's a fear like I want to run away, that's not a good thing. And if I've done anything in my presentation that has incited that kind of a fear, God forgive me and you please forgive me too because my heart's intent is trying to convey what I believe is a pretty clear scriptural truth, but trying to convey it in a way that I think, I feel like really represents scripture and represents the heart of our God. So let's stand up together.